Hello, and welcome to The Making of, a Nat Geo podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Wilson-Hunt, and with me today are three artists from the Nat Geo original series, Genius Aretha, actress Cynthia Revo, and later in the show, hair and makeup artists Corey Moreno and Terrell Mullen. Welcome, Cynthia. Congratulations on Genius Aretha. How has it felt to see the series resonate as widely and dramatically as it has? It's overwhelming. I really didn't, I didn't know that it would do this. I'm kind of blown away by how people have taken to it. And I've received so many different messages about the things that people didn't know about Aretha, the love that they have for the music of it and the reminder that the music was wonderful and people going back and listening to her music again, which is really one of the secret wants for this for me, that people would go back and re-listen to some of the songs that she had created and done just because it's such good music. And I think that it takes reminding that, hey, this music was really, really wonderful. Yeah, it's kind of awesome. It's true. And I, it's so interesting you bring that up because there is sort of something that we take for granted with this music because it's been so much a part of our lives for so long. Yeah. And now that I've revisited it since watching the series, I'm listening to the genius of it. Does that make sense? I'm so aware now of all of the intonation and the funk and the bass and just <laughs> it's so big and it's not just respect. It's just it's all of it and the gospel and and I think you're right. It's, it really is worth revisiting. And, and so thank you for that, because it's a great excuse to listen to Aretha. <laughs> right? Thank you very much. I mean, I can't take too much credit for it. I mean, I was having just as much fun doing it as people have had watching and listening to it. The fact that we had to learn all this music and some of which I didn't even know she did. You know, the silly things like there's a song called Rockabye in, in I think it's episode two. Mm-hmm. Rockabye, my rockabye baby in a Dixie melody. I've never heard that song before. I hadn't either, and I did, yeah. And I was just like, oh, she did. She used to do like jazz and blues standards, which I didn't realize was such a big part of the beginning of her career until I started learning about what it took to get her to where she was. And so knowing that this was such a big part of her and how she had to sort of carve her own lane out of what she had been listening to her whole life was kind of incredible. A lot of revelations along the way, I imagine, for you. Yeah, very much so. (laughs) And I'd love to know, let's go back to when you officially signed on to play this role. What scared you the most about this? Or I guess what didn't scare you? Because it was probably pretty scary all around. I mean, I don't really do a part if I'm not somewhat shaken by it a little bit. If it feels like it's going to be an easy ride, I'm probably not going to do it. I, some may say that's a glutton for punishment. I say it's want for challenge. You do seem to shy away from easy stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, even if it's funny, even if, you know, there are pieces that are coming that, that are more comedy than drama, but they're not easy. I think I thrive when I'm challenged. I like being challenged by pieces of work. I like having to learn. I like coming out different than I went in. And I think that that was the the thing about this piece that I knew that if I was to do it, it would put me through my paces. I would have to learn a lot. I would have to discover more than I already knew. I would have to put my voice through its paces as well and find different parts of it that I haven't used before. And And I was really looking forward to that. You know, the idea that Everybody knows that Aretha's music is not easy. It never has been and never will be. But as a singer, you know that innately. And usually you find a way to sing Aretha's music in your own way. Every singer has a way to sing Aretha. But when you have to sing it as her, you really have to do the work to find out what the intricacies of 
the decisions that she was making are. And that was daunting, not scary, because I am truly a lover of music. I'm a geek when it comes to how the voice can be used. And so for me, it was going to class, going to school and learning again. Yeah. So as a professional singer yourself, what is distinct about the way Aretha used her voice? Because she really does have such a unique tone. And I I have studied music. I have sung myself and I still can't find a way to articulate exactly what is so special about the way she sings. What What is it to you? There are many things that happen with her voice. And it's that if you listen to one song and three versions that she has done, not one of them are the same. The wonderful thing that she does is interpret the music in the moment. And so she has an innate understanding about the skill set that she has in her voice, the wide range, the wide dynamics that she has, because sometimes it can sound really thin and bright. And then then it will sound like she's been smoking 50 cigarettes. Right, exactly. She has a way of shifting between those very strange dynamics without what we would normally now know as a phaser, which would change everything, fade things out, fade things in. She does it on her own. And also depending on the genre too, like the way her voice sounds yes. singing gospel is totally different singing. Exactly, very like different. More jivey stuff, yeah. Very, very different. Her singing funk is very different to her singing gospel. There's a thing that I, I don't know that people realize. I've listened to her so often. There are moments where it sounds like she's putting lots of volume in it, but actually she's singing at the very back of her throat. So there's actually no volume at all. It just is because of where it's placed, sounds wider. And not many people know how to do that, but she does it very, very well. And so if you listen closely, you can then decipher, well, here she's wailing and here she's literally singing in the most relaxed way. And it sort of just sounds big, sounds loud, but actually it's not. It's most relaxed. It's almost like a whisper. So it's sort of, it's coming from her throat and her mouth as opposed to from her diaphragm. Exactly. But then when she sings from her diaphragm, which is often when she's singing gospel, that's when the the size comes. That's when the bigness of it comes. Yeah. You'll get bigness when she's performing. She loves when she's performing live performances. I love watching her live videos performing because that's when the bigness comes because she's having fun. She does whatever the heck she wants to (laughs) with the song. You can't follow the melody when she's uh, when she's singing live because she's just doing whatever she feels like in the moment. There's a lot of improv for sure. Yeah, she is a jazz musician, too. That's that as well. It's the combination. She has a jazz musician's propensity with an R&B and soul gospel voice. So she has the vocabulary of jazz, but uses it as an R&B singer, as a soul singer, as a gospel singer. And it's that combination that's really special because not many people can do that or can even imagine that. Yeah, absolutely. And now that we're talking about this, those decisions are what make the genius sort of, mm-hmm, I'm going mm-hmm. to employ this style for this song. I'm going to imply this. And, and not a lot of people have even that freedom to make those decisions. Mm. And I think that it's not just that. I think it's the way she learns music. She couldn't read music. It was learning by ear and being able to play it back exactly how she heard it. And then some, and being able to pick up all of these styles without really any hesitation it's kind of incredible. You know, I think of, I don't know why these songs are always so clear in my head, but if you listen to Rocksteady and maybe A Rose. Yeah. 
So like legato and flowy and raspy. And just watching you sing too, your mouth was almost totally closed when you were singing that. Yeah. Baby girl. And sometimes she does that. But when you hear rock steady, baby, that's what I feel now. It's so bright. Yeah, exactly. That's the word I keep thinking when I hear that sound. It's so incredibly, it's like a light is coming out of it. Exactly. Her. And the thing is, obviously, age changes the way we sound. But I don't know that she really ever lost her range. I remember watching her at like a concert, maybe, when I say maybe like three or four years ago, it was uh, the opening of a film or something. And she was singing live. She was one of the guests, came on, sang, and her voice was the same. It's so strange. You know, life will change the way you sound. It just will. What happens to you in your life, what, what you eat, where you are, the atmosphere. And how your body changes over time. How too. your body changes, changes the sound. But she was able to temper the changes in her life, the atmosphere, her, her body, her whatever, and still keep what we knew and what we loved. There's like a texture that she has that no one else has, whether it's bright or slightly raspy and almost muddy sometimes. It still had something of her in it. You know, it's a very special voice. So, so true. And you do, and I don't want to say an imitation of her, and I, I would call it channeling. That's the best word because you would never pretend to be her because that's not the point of this. You're really channeling her. And as a vocalist yourself, what training did you have to do? And obviously you're already trained, but did you have to learn any new techniques in order to do a lot of those scenes, which is you singing? Yeah, I, I had a wonderful vocal coach and we would spend maybe an hour or two on on each song just working through it bit by bit. When you listen to enough songs of Aretha, you start to learn that there are habits that she has that she sort of, that go from one song to the other. Um, she has like a, I guess we would call it a glissando, mm-hmm. a technical term. It's like a, a drawl almost. That kind of thing. But it, and it can work either way. Mm-hmm. And she would use that constantly in songs. It's like moving from one note to the other. And it's like pulling the note to join to the next. And also key changes too. It seems like she used that as a bridge to modulate. Yeah. Yeah. I had to learn the different riffs that she would do. There's a, which song is it? You're All I Need to Get By. That Mm. song is all about riffs. So different things give you different skills. This song is all about the the decisions she's making, all the riffs she's choosing to do. And then say, for instance, there's another song called Never Grow Old, which is about the, the pauses and the weights and the, she makes you wait almost uncomfortably before she gets comes to the next note. With You're All I Need to Get By, it's how she moves from one note to the other. It's like a puzzle. The norm, when we've heard the song before, is like a sweet morning dew. I took one look at you, and it was plain to see. You are my destiny. She does like a sweet morning dew. I took one mm-hmm. look at you, and it was plain to see. You are my destiny. With my arms open wide, I threw away my pride. A sacrifice for you, dedicate my life to you. It's like all of the grace notes in between to get to the destination. 
It's incredible. That was amazing, by the way. (laughs) I have chills. Um, But you're so right. It's like she just takes the basic bones of the melody and just sort of adds flourishes at the top and the bottom. It's like a coloring. You know when you take a coloring Mm -hmm. book, you see the picture, it's already lovely, but when you add color to it, all of a sudden it comes alive. And that's what she does. She sort of fills in the gaps where the color isn't and it sort of brings it right out at you. And that's one of those songs that I was like, when did she, how does she find that right (laughs) how do you find those spaces like that it's kind of incredible it's so intuitive yeah there's a lot of skill and practice but my god it really just comes from (laughs) from inside (laughs) i think so too so i'd love to talk about your physical transformation we have the vocal transformation yes your hair makeup and clothing You, you had an incredible glam team and then of course jennifer bryan the amazing costumer we spoke to on another episode of this podcast i love her by the way my goodness she's wonderful she is really <laughs> wonderful what did you learn about aretha working with jennifer and creating like all the iterations of her wardrobe because we really see her growing a lot and how she presents herself what light did that shed for you into her persona Oh, a lot. I think we don't realize how much clothing and style and fashion has to do with our own growth, the confidence we feel in ourselves, moving from one space to another in our lives. And I think for Aretha, as the style changed, I think she got braver and braver as herself. You know, in the 50s, 60s, it's all very sweet and, you know, pared down. And yes, that you, you everything's matching and the You've got the earrings and the dresses that work really well, the the beehive that everyone else is wearing. And then you start to move away from it when you reach the sort of late 60s, 70s, when she starts to really discover her voice as an activist, really discover her voice as a black woman and really discover her sound as well. So it becomes she makes a huge U-turn at that moment and becomes very Afrocentric. So you start seeing her into the dashikis and the headscarves. And the, at one point she wears what I would know in my culture, Nigerian, as um, a gele. There's a picture of her wearing an orange gele. And I look at it and I go, my mom would have worn one of these. And so she starts to infuse her African heritage and like the understanding of what that is at that point, which is really wonderful. And then she moves out of that and starts to have a lot of fun with it in the 70s. Like the Afro, she has the Afro for a little bit. And we see that through to Amazing Grace, where we see that the documentary, which is wonderful. She's very brave with color all the way through. Color is one of the things that she doesn't shy away from. There's this wonderful picture of her with the, I think it's the 60s. And she's got this feathered, cuffed, orange long gown with jewels all on the front and then there's another piece when she is performing for Dr. Martin Luther King and she's in bright green that's a piece that Jennifer created a replica of it's got feathers on the neck feathers on the skirt and it's bright green stripes it's like lime pastel bright green and she never shies away from color but it's like the shapes that she starts to play with well you also seen her become more comfortable in her skin exactly and dressing for herself as opposed to for the audience which i think is really empowering as she like you've said sort of embraces this sense of self and activism and politics which you know wasn't really encouraged for women at that time yeah i really love my favorite 
era is probably when she becomes like a redhead mm-hmm. and it sort of becomes sort of Farrah Fawcett feathery hair and it's all <laughs> like orange and at one point becomes blonde goes back to yeah. orange like it's just she's sort of playing with the styles of it and you're watching interviews that she really does sort of like lean into the feel of the 70s and she wears the platform heels and there's a really wonderful clip of her at a game show where she is in like this fully denim outfit this is when she still has her afro but she's got these huge platforms on that she can only shuffle in (laughs) and i think she just leaned into whatever felt good at that time and then towards the end of the 70s into the 80s she's decided at this point i'm going to have fun it's when she has her residency at las vegas and it's when she decides to just try something new and leans into the glamour of it all and leans into the change of makeup change of hair change of look it's when everything starts to get a little bit more like fun and costuming as she starts to play you're watching her become who we know and love today you're watching her really become the star really become comfortable with who she is really become brave about making decisions for herself i think that late 70s period when she's in her 40s is sort of you know she's come through it all and has sort of hit a stop where she has to sort of discover herself again and find out what she wants now because making music for everybody else isn't enough and it's not selling. And now she has to just have fun. And that's when, like, soon after that, you get sisters are doing it for themselves. You get, mm-hmm. you know, New Year waiting and all of those things start coming out. And it's it's like she becomes young again after the 70s, which is really, really fun to watch. Yeah. Yeah, the 80s were fun, a fun inclination yeah. too. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Really fun. So I would love to know, in your life as a young person, when were you first aware of Aretha and her music? Do you remember the first song you heard? Is it even possible to, at this point, to even remember that? I know that the first time I heard her, it was Magic FM. There's a radio station here in London called Magic FM. It's 105.4 and a <laughs> FM. And they play the most eclectic music everything from mike and the mechanics to kate bush to aretha and annie lennox to george michael elton john they play all sorts patty labelle gladys knight you name it they play it i must have been i think i was on the way to school in the back of my mum's car and i think think comes on the radio and i didn't know who she was i hadn't heard her before and I just remember it registering when I hear it. And then we're sort of halfway there and another song comes on and it's Annie Lennox and sisters are doing it for themselves. Oh, wow. And I just remember thinking this voice just did two different things. And I'm fascinated by how this person has made their voice work on both of these songs because I like both of those songs and I didn't know why. And I just started sort of chasing after the sound. And I asked my mother, it's Aretha Franklin, I said, oh, can I listen to more? And I started listening from them. Yeah. And how old were you at the time? Nine. I oh, think. wow. Yeah. That's an amazing early exposure. <laughs> yeah. My mom was very good at making sure that we were listening to music all the time. She had records and, and all sorts at the house. Yeah. I love that. In terms of your relationship with, we've talked about her clothing, the hair and makeup, I think is so beautiful because it, she always seemed to never overdo it. Yeah. And when you were working with your team, to create those different looks for her for her face and her hair. What look to you made you feel the most like Aretha? Where you looked in the mirror and you, of course, know you're not Aretha and you're not trying to be her. But was there a moment where you caught a glimpse and you thought, okay, 
I'm as close as I'm going to feel to having that energy. There are three looks. Okay. That made me feel that way. The very beginning, it's the frosted lip, the very black eyebrow and the, the beauty spot that she used to draw for herself. That made me feel like her. And then the second is during Amazing Grace with the Afro. And she made a, Jennifer made a, a replica of the outfit she was wearing during that. It's the Afro and like the silver or green eyeshadow and the very light frosted lip. She always had a frosted lip. She loved frosted lips. Mm -hmm. That made me feel like her. And then it's the orange hair. <laughs> that orange hair. I don't know. But I guess when we got to the end, I was really like flabbergasted by the work. It was prosthetics and hair and makeup. Everyone coming together. The outfit. There's this one a couple of moments. This is when we do Ness and Dorma. It's so crazy because they recreated the hair to the T, right down to the blonde streak that she had in her hair in that performance at the Grammys and the dark lip that she was wearing to do Ness and Dorma. When I look at it, it doesn't look like me. It doesn't feel like me. And then that same body, but with the long hair in the purple suit sitting down in a talk show, that feels like her. I would look at the mirror and go, well, I don't know where I am, but that's definitely Aretha. <laughs> that's a good yeah. feeling. That's a good feeling. Yeah, it's a really good feeling. Yeah. And, you know, I speak to a lot of actors who say they don't watch their work, which I always find fascinating. Have you watched the series? In bits. I have not yet sat down to watch the entire thing. Okay. It's so strange. I don't know. I go back to the scenes that I know that I really wanted to see. Okay. And they don't always involve me. <laughs> right. Sure, sure. And you have an amazing cast. Yeah. And so I've gone back to see parts of it, but I haven't quite been brave enough to watch the entire thing yet. Oh, well, I hope you have a chance. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. So you have played a few real life figures, obviously Aretha, Harriet Tubman, and then you have a project coming up where you will be playing an African princess named Sarah Forbes Bonetta. And I'm wondering, is someone like you who clearly has incredible range on the stage and screen, what appeals to you about telling these types of women's stories? Is there an aspect where you want to sort of bring to light the genius that may have been forgotten? Is it that idea of celebrating these people in ways that they never were at the time and deserve to be? How much of that plays into it for you? I think it might be a combination of all of those things, to be honest. I think by accident, I always end up leaning towards those women who should not have been forgotten, but have been. Because in a way, even with Aretha, I think I feel like by the time we lost her, she had been reduced to the music that she made, which means that we really didn't understand the work that had gone into being that person, the work that had come before. We knew her as the singer, but I think people didn't realize that she actually was damn near a concert pianist with a brain that was unbelievable, that was able to compute the sound of music and replicate it back to you which is a very specific skill. The fact that she would compose and arrange without being able to read music, she would just be speaking it to people, telling people what to do, but really being able to articulate what she wanted. I don't believe people knew the scope of who she was. And I think my, I guess my passion is to try and communicate the scope of who each of these women were. Even with Harriet, she'd been reduced to the hero who had saved enslaved people. But actually, this woman lived till she was 91, and her life was dedicated to serving people. The beauty of Harriet is that she was a human being with wants and 
needs and she loved and lost love. And I don't think people even realized that. I don't think people even knew she was a married woman. We were never taught that she was, and much like Aretha, that she was multidimensional and had flaws. Exactly. And disappointments and losses. I don't think people realized that when she was doing the work that we know her for, she was in her 20s. And the pictures that we see of her are not from that time. They're from the time of suffrage. So she was a suffragette by the time we see that picture with the white bow. And by the time we see that last picture, she's 90-something, 91 maybe, and she has opened her home to those who need shelter and a place to be. And in between that, she was a spy for the army, a general, and all of those things above. And those are things that we just, I don't think we knew. We weren't taught those things. And with Sarah Forsbonetta, she's all but been erased from our history books when she was a very real person who was about in the royal court, who was essentially a gift given to the queen, but people realised how brilliant she was and so garnered the respect from everybody else and became all but a princess. You know, these are lives that existed and had great meaning and deserve to be shown because they also act as an example to black women of the lineage that they come from, you know? And that I just don't think there's enough. How has Aretha's story changed the way you see yourself as an artist? Because you're an artist first, but you're also a businesswoman. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We can't forget that part of it. And Aretha struggled with that aspect of, of her career too. It's not a natural thing for a lot of us to become business people alongside of our craft. How has she made you reevaluate your space in Hollywood, but also just as an artist who also wants to be successful? Yeah, I think you're saying that I'm a businesswoman was really one of the ways in which I was inspired by her because she had to take matters into her own hands and really carve out the space for herself as a businesswoman. She had to ask for the credit on her album. She had to, Amazing Grace was the first album that she was credited as a producer on and she had to fight for that, even though it was her idea right. and she wanted to do it. <laughs> I think I, I learned a lot from her about relinquishing the fear of asking for something you know that you're deserving of. I've learned that from her just by playing her and learning about how much she fought for consistently. On top of which, just as a musician, the scope of how much she knew about her voice. I know a lot about my voice and I like to say I'm greedy with it because I want to know more. I want to know what else I can do. I want to know what else my (laughs) voice can do, where else it can go. And she had that. And I think that it's really, she was fearless. Her standing on stage and singing Ness and Dorma is a feat. She's singing an, an opera. (laughs) Right, And to me, it just says, well, if your voice is meant to do many things, let it do many things. There's no point lessening the size of the space that you take up if you can take up more. There's no point trying to squeeze yourself into something small when you could just build a place that's bigger for you so you can fit with some space and ease. And I think that's something that I've learned from her. I love that. And then finally, I would love to know if you had the opportunity to ask her one question, what would it be? If I had the opportunity to ask her one question... It sounds simple, but I think I would ask her how she was. How are you? Oh. Yeah. It's a basic question that probably she wasn't asked a lot. Very often, yeah. You know, someone asked me that question recently when I did an interview, and I I was really taken aback by it because I think I realized that a lot of 
artists or public people are really asked that question. So we don't think about it very much. <laughs> and I, I honestly don't think people asked her that question very often. Mm. Yeah, because I think people assumed that she was okay. And I think that she had a lot to work through, a lot to deal with. And I think that she was putting on a brave face a lot. Like, I don't know that many people knew that she was as ill as she was when, you know, before she died, because she was brave facing it. And I think that if people asked her how she was more often, she may have been inclined to say, actually, today I'm not feeling so great. Right. And to make that okay to, to, to say that out loud. And to make that okay to say it out loud. Yeah. Well, before we go, I do want to ask, how are you, Cynthia? Today I'm feeling good. Good. Today I'm feeling really good. <laughs> I'm happy to hear. And again, congratulations on your amazing work. And uh, you've really done her proud and really served thank you very much. a special version of her legacy that I think has really resonated. So thank you so much. That means a lot. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> and joining me now to discuss just how they transformed Cynthia into the queen of soul is hairstylist Corey Moreno. Hi, Corey. Hi, how are you? Nice to be here. Thanks for being here. And makeup artist Terrell Mullen. Hi, Terrell. Hi, how are you? Nice to be here. Thank you for being here. So, gentlemen, I'd love to talk a little bit about your relationship working with Cynthia Revo before Genius. And maybe, Corey, tell me a little bit about how you came to work with her. And you are her real-life glam team in real life, so you have a shorthand. <laughs> I would love to know, first of all, how you got to work with her initially. And, Terrell, tell me a little bit about how that existing relationship helped you in creating the looks for Genius Aretha. So maybe, Corey, tell me a little bit about that background. So me and Cynthia, we have a great relationship and a great story behind how we met. So in the beginning, I actually was assisting and I met her on the job. We instantly connected. And like the business goes, people get busy. And, you know, I was the first option. And it's been great since then. We've been able to creatively connect and build and work on different types of projects. And it's just been pure chemistry for about the past four years creatively. Yeah, that's pretty much how we connected and grew our relationship up until this point. That's amazing. And Cynthia, of course, is known for incredible looks, mm -hmm. <laughs> clothing, makeup and hair. How much of a role have you played in helping sort of cultivate? Obviously, she has amazing style but helping her bring her inner goddess into the light. I think it's just really about bringing that professional eye and really helping refine what makes sense visually. It's just been a cool space of really like hearing something and really like delivering it for her and helping her transform into characters and all of those different just nuances throughout our relationship. I think it's just, you know, my professional input and eye, I think really helps add to what you kind of see before you. So you're sort of augmenting that sort of artistry that's already there, right? Correct. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that. And Terrell, you're, of course, her makeup artist. Tell me how you began working with Cynthia. And, and then both of you maybe can weigh in on how has that collaboration helped you in diving into something as deeply complex as Genius Aretha? I met Cynthia about five years ago. I was called in to do her makeup for a Grammy party that she had with Clive Davis. And Ooh, that's a big night. <laughs> each night. And from then on, it was just a, you know, instant connection. I kind of became her West Coast makeup artist because she was still based in New York City. So when she would come to LA, I would always do her makeup for anything she had. From then on, we just kind of grew and she, you know, established a relationship and a, you know, a family that became, you know, just, she just trusted me and Corey with, with what we did and 
what we brought to the table when it came to her look. And we then dived into our first show with her, which was The Outsider on HBO. We did that. You know, after COVID hit, it kind of made it more easier for her to request us within her films and her TV stuff because it's like, this is my team. I feel comfortable. Right. She's a powerful woman, right? Yes, you know. She's like, (laughs) you know, and me being an old head in old school, when she got called for the Aretha Project, I was like, I'm all in because Aretha Franklin is one of my all-time favorite artists. I grew up listening to her with my mom in the house and I knew all the, you know, the references and had all the album covers. So I was very familiar with what we had to create when it came to doing that. So there was definitely a shorthand when you sat down to really create this incredible series of looks. And maybe, Corey, tell me a little bit about your research process. You know, Aretha herself went through so many transformations, visual transformations, hair transformations. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Tell me how you approached even just cataloging what looks you were going to include in the series and then also bringing those to life. So, yeah, I mean, it was amazing for me. I mean, I was born in 93, so you can only imagine how much referencing I had to do. Yes, you were not around during the glory days, (laughs) right? (laughs) At all. So, I mean, having someone like Terrell there, I mean, we were able to literally map out her whole career. It was pretty cool just to have, like, you know, OGs around me to really help me (laughs) know those iconic moments that we were really searching for. Because what we put on screen, we wanted it to really make a statement and help the viewers be transported. We really just found those key moments throughout her life that you can really put your finger on and say, okay, that was Aretha. So it it was just great. It was great. Well, and now that you've revealed your youth to us, what were your (laughs) points of reference for Aretha? How familiar were you? Obviously, you know who she was, but was her music (laughs) and her legacy, obviously... (laughs) We're not shaming you for being young, Corey. (laughs) It's okay. Um, You know, I grew up in a very musically eclectic household. So, I mean, I definitely heard all of the Aretha music going on. But my real first recollection was all of the rap artists who sampled Aretha. Oh, that's interesting. You know, I was able to kind of like pick apart those musical moments, you know, listening to rap music. As I was growing up and it was crazy to hear the original and and hear how much soul and effort was put into it. So it really lets me know why it was even sampled to begin with. I kind of came from such a different generation. I I got re-educated all. (laughs) (laughs) I love that, though. And to see the artists get what they're due for creating those riffs and those. I myself even to this day will be embarrassed when I'll hear a song and think, oh, my God, I didn't know that that came from this original song. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, Mm -hmm. you bring up a really great point. (laughs) Yes. So Terrell, tell me, you know, when when you're sitting down with Corey, are you working in tandem with each other the entire time and actually blocking out hair and makeup, you know, sort of concurrent with each other? Are those processes separate, if if at all? No, it's definitely, you know, you want to be cohesive with Corey as well as Anthony, director, and as well with Jennifer when it comes to wardrobe. Yes, Jennifer is amazing, yes. Yeah, we wanted to make sure we was, you know, being true to what exactly happened and what exactly Aretha wore at that particular time. As, you know, for instance, the Grammy look she did with Luke James, Glenn Turner, her husband, I wanted to be real specific on her eyeshadow shade. Like she had powder blue eyeshadow and a silver frosted like lid. I wanted to be true to that. that So I made sure I had that exact (laughs) shade and top and bottom lashes and the lips she had on. So because it was such an iconic moment when she did wear that. So we made sure we were very true. And like, you know, doing that, like for Corey, he was in there the day of creating wig and cutting the hair shorter or adding hair, changing the color. I I, I literally seen Corey dye a wig the day we had to shoot because the reference they gave us was wrong. And then we, 
Well, the reference wasn't wrong. It was printed incorrectly. So when we actually looked at the actual real reference oh, per video, the, the hair mm-hmm. was different. It was oranger. So Corey then had to change the hair color on the spot. That's really interesting, Trell. And when I spoke to Jennifer a few months ago, who was really so gifted, she talked about the challenge of creating the costumes when a lot of the photography was black and white. So did you run into those issues where you actually didn't have a representation of the color? Exactly. Or trying to figure out what we thought the color was, you know, especially right. like in the 60 right. eras, like, you know, when it came to her eyeshadow or lipstick, I was figuring out what she had. That's so interesting. And on the day of when Cynthia comes in, probably, you know, at 5 a.m., that ungodly hour where you guys have to start working. What is the process? Does she do hair first, then makeup? Or are you working at the same time? I'm always so curious how you're executing these looks because you don't have a lot of time every day. Makeup first. Makeup goes first, especially because she was wearing a wig. So it was nothing but Corey was kind of doing the hair off of her head and would just pop it on. So I would start. She would start her makeup first and I would create what I needed to do first. And then the last 20, 30 minutes, Corey would then grab her and you know, hit her with the wig because Cynthia's bald headed. So it was, everything was a wig. <laughs> Nothing was her real hair. She, you know, so it was makeup first. It probably helps that Cynthia keeps her hair closely cropped because then helps. you can just swap out those wigs, yes. right? It's, it helps a lot. <laughs> and Corey, tell me, I, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert in any of this and I'm so interested. How does one dye a wig on the spot? And isn't that terribly messy? <laughs> it could be messy, but like, I'm just very intuitive like that. And I like to have those very like present conversations where it's like, okay, like, tell me what this looks like on this light. What are you looking for? And I'm ready to jump in. Like I have years and years of years of in salon training, so I can like jump in and, you know, work on the fly. And, you know, it's just been cool to really use all those techniques quickly and being able to make things happen because like you said we don't have much time and we were you know swapping and especially after the pandemic we didn't really have much time so we jam-packed so much and in so little time you know we were jumping from eras in one day right it was a challenge but i just kind of like took that as opportunity to just show all my skill set and and do what i came to do and you coming from the salon world you must have learned so much about lighting you mentioned lighting and working with people like Anthony Hemingway, executive producer and one of the directors, tell me what you learned about the secret to lighting. And also, Terrell, tell me what you learned on this project, too, that has augmented your existing knowledge on that front. Maybe start with Corey. Well, Kevin, we worked with him on, he was the DP from The Outsiders. Mm-hmm. So him and Anthony in tandem, it was quite amazing. And also, Terrell has great knowledge on the lighting and photography world. So I kind of was just immediately submerged in what hair looks like in certain lighting and what we needed to do to create that realistic aesthetic in certain lighting. And I think that everybody on board really wanted to make sure Cynthia looked her best. So those conversations were constantly being had. Like, what what does the lighting feel like in this moment? And also just after I went back and watched, I realized that the lighting played a huge part in just the way that it was shot and the way that the story was told. So, you know, I, I appreciated those conversations and the acknowledgement of what lighting meant. And Terrell, talk about lighting in your work and the difference between and the challenges between shooting outside and indoors. Because I know there's actually a lot of scenes that take place outdoors in this series. Well, I've been in this business for almost 20 something years, so I'm very familiar <laughs> with lighting and all that good stuff. So it wasn't really a challenge for me. I was just, you know, wanted to be, like I said before, true to the era and, you know, the way it read when it was worn back then. And I didn't want to make any modernization to what mm. the makeup was. You know, I wanted to have the jet black eyebrows and the frosted lip and her mole, like she changed, and her winged eyelash. You know, I want to make sure it was right. 
you know, true to that and true to the fact that it wasn't always perfected. I didn't want to get on there and have Aretha with perfect makeup as though she had a makeup artist doing it because, you know, the divas back then was doing their own makeup behind the That's stage. Really so I didn't want point, to look right? like she had a artist backstage putting her perfect eyeliner on. I kept it a little like she did it herself. You know, her lipstick was applied by herself. She didn't have a professional makeup artist. So she didn't have Terrell helping her. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and she still managed to look flawless exactly. from, from everything that I exactly. Do each of you have a favorite look that you created? It could be a favorite hair look, could be favorite makeup, favorite combination look, like the Grammy look you described, Terrell. I love that moment. The blue eyeshadow, just beautiful. It was the Vegas look when when the hair went apricot orangey color and we've shown oh, yes. more mm-hmm. the top and bottom lashes that's from the era of Diana Ross was all with mahogany so the girls really stepped up their glam looks in those eras so that was my favorite I love that how about you Corey I would say that was my favorite too because it was like one of the fewer opportunities where well I mean we saw a lot of diversity and it was hard to really implicate too much change because it was a series you know, we wanted to feel comfortable to watch. We didn't want to really, you know, jolt people into all these crazy spaces. So that really felt like a special moment where it showed the peaking of like Aretha's glam aesthetic. You know what I mean? Like that's when she really pushed it. And I really enjoyed seeing hair in motion and she was performing. Like it just, it was a great, a great moment for Aretha. So I think it was enjoyable for everyone involved, including, you know, wardrobe and set design. Everybody had a great creative exchange with that performance specifically. So I just, I felt the creativity. Terrell, I wanted to ask you about something. I heard a great interview with Octavia Spencer a few months ago about how when she started in the business, she had to bring her own makeup to set because there were so few resources for black artists and predominantly black women and hair needs and makeup needs. How has that changed since you started? Because I have a sense that on this project, that was never a concern, <laughs> that, that those resources were there and that Cynthia was taken care of and the lighting was very specific and everything she needed to look her best was in place. What was that like for you? Well, it's changing. Talent themselves are now speaking up more. They have more leeway to make the changes and, and, and to request the changes. It's still going on a little bit in our, in our field. You know, we, I did an interview about a couple months ago about this exact thing. But it's changing. It still needs to be pushed a little bit more. But it is changing with Black artists being allowed to be union into the business because we have a makeup union for it that allows us to work on these shows. So it's been a predominantly white business for a long time it's hard for us to get our foot in the door luckily i was a star request and got in over 20 years ago so it it was kind of easier back then but it's more and more talent talking and requesting to feel comfortable when they're getting in front of the camera and not having to bring their bag in bag in of makeup or you know go back to the trailer and change their makeup up and fix what they need to fix and not focus on what they need to focus on, which is the lines and the character itself. You know, you shouldn't have to go back to your trailer after leaving the makeup trailer to fix your makeup. No, that should never be a concern for an actor. No. Coming to set. Right. Right. And Corey, what's your experience been? Obviously, you've come into the business later than Terrell, but obviously this isn't new information and someone who works in your field. What have you seen on this front? I feel like there's a conscious effort that has to go in on the talents we have. You know, Cynthia fights tooth and nail to make sure she has us no matter what. It's getting easier to have your team, you know, and I'm in constant conversation with Union 706, which I'm now get in the process of becoming represented by them. But they are even uh, making strides to make sure that they grant me access 
on projects and give me waivers to make sure that I'm able to work. So it's changing, like Terrell said, but it takes the talent to really speak up and say, you know, I need this to make my day easy and make, you know, myself feel the best that I can. It's a, I feel a full circle work on everybody's behalf. You know, the talent has to make sure that they're equipped and ready and making sure that they're diverse in their training and also making sure that the people higher up are bringing on new people who are well-versed in all things. That really is honestly, I think, what has to happen. I love that. And Terrell, did you have something to add? Just what Corey was saying, for the talent to do their best and not be worried about what they look like and how it's reading on camera. You know, when you're on set, that should be the last thing on your mind. You should feel comfortable enough to go on set to do your job, which is to act. Right. And in Cynthia's case, to sing and do all the amazing yeah, things exactly. that, she did, that she had to do, too. Exactly. And in closing, I wanted to know, is there a look that you created for the show that you would like to see come back into fashion now that everything old is new again? <laughs> How about you, Corey? There was one look that was kind of like a bob length flipped with like height <laughs> and volume. It was a very 60s mod type vibe. But I feel like I'm really ready to reintroduce like classic hairstyling for, for women because it's like the longevity of a style like that and like the hair care that goes into that is very different from what people are doing right now. So it's like, I really want to kind of bring that essence back. And I kind of got inspired by that whole era. I love it. What, you know, sort of the woman going to the salon for three hours every Sunday, and then she has the style for the whole week. I love that too. Exactly. (laughs) And how about you, Terrell? Are you hoping that that blue eyeshadow makes a comeback? (laughs) No, not necessarily the blue eyeshadow, but just the idea of women, you know, taking glam seriously and want to be glamour. I miss that. I miss those days when women, you know, everyone wants to be undone now. Like, I just woke up. No, I want to <laughs> see you look like a star. I want to wake up trying to recreate what, you, what I see, you know, the stars look like. Like back in the day when you seen Cher wearing a Bob Mackie dress, you wanted to look like Cher, you know, or Tina Turner or, or Aretha. I would like that to come back. And I think the two of you have really contributed so much to this show. And, and I know Cynthia would agree. You're sort of the unsung hero. So congratulations. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. Thank, thank you so you. much for having me. I'd like to thank Cynthia, Corey, and Terrell for joining me today. For more information on Genius Aretha, please visit natgeotv.com slash FYC. I'm Stacey Wilson-Hunt, and this has been the making of a Nat Geo podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The Making of a Nat Geo podcast is a National Geographic production. Executive producers, Stephanie Montgomery and Chris Alpert. Host, Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Writers and producers, Dave Beesing, Thomas Green, Jason Jackson, Kevin Horton, and Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Associate producer, Shanna Blackman. And production coordinator, Juliana Parisi. In association with Benstown, McVeigh Media, and Sound That Brands.